This episode contains spoilers for the Mary Shelley novel Frankenstein, as well as James Whale's 1931 horror film classic of the same name, and by extension, due to significant inspiration from the original source material. This podcast also contains mild spoilers for Bernard Rose's 2016 version of Frankenstein. Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 83. On Horror Movie Podcast, you get to hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I'm your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shockbecker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh, Jay, his brain is damaged. We need to get another brain. <laughs> is it Abby? It's useless, in fact, <laughs> is what I meant to say. <laughs> is it Abby normal? <laughs> it's a little Abby normal. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So this is a special episode. We're really excited you guys are here. This is a Frankensteinian episode, perhaps more than ever, in a very literal way. It is our Frankensteinian episode because Dave, tell the listeners what this versus episode is going to be all about. Well, it's it's what it is is we're we're going to take a a classic horror film and we're going to look at a modern take on it as well, and it's really just comparing and contrasting the two. Uh, so in this case, uh, we're going with uh, 1931's Frankenstein and also from 2016. Frankenstein. That's right. Uh, which um, actually, it's it's an awesome parallel because it's it's basically along the lines of the same story. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them just up, you know, for uh, set in a modern day. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're going to be doing that with a lot of the classics, uh, you know, going forward. Uh, we had talked about uh, with you know Dracula, doing Thirty One's Dracula, and also um, the Bram Stoker's Dracula, you know, the Francis Ford Coppola film. Um, and of course, with Wolfman, we have that uh, the the original Wolfman, and then the one that just came out a few years ago. So it's just something we're looking at with a lot of the Universal, but we're also extending out into other uh, classic horror films as well. That's right. So that's what people can look forward to in this episode. But before we get to all that, uh, Wolfman Josh, we've actually got a little um, surprise we wonder at least remind the listeners about if they haven't caught up with it yet over on the sci-fi podcast. Yeah, of course we uh, reviewed phantasm one and two on this show on the last episode that aired and um, the the concluding portion of that crossover podcast is posted on the sci-fi podcast uh, feed at the sci-fi podcast.com or on iTunes and that includes Phantasm Part 3 and 4. So if you want to hear the rest of our discussion on the Phantasm series, head over to the Sci-Fi Podcast. It was a lot of fun. Yes, it and, was. And, you know, it's, are their shows a little bit different, a little more rambling? Uh, they take their time over there. And <laughs> and so I think, I you know, I edit a lot of those episodes. I cut about, oh, 15 minutes out of the intro uh, to that episode. <laughs> And we still didn't start talking about Phantasm till like minute thirty. So, <laughs> <laughs> but well, be prepared for some fun other sci-fi related content um, beforehand. <laughs> In fact, fans of Station, you need to listen to it because she drops 
uh, a bomb on the audience during her yeah uh, her portion of the absolutely it's pretty yeah. remarkable podcasting it's on the level of um over on movie podcast weekly a geek cast ryan uh recently revealed that he's getting a vasectomy yes he volunteered that to everyone <laughs> and he's going to record it as a podcast and have his doctor narrating and stuff and so Ugh. he's going to be releasing that over on geek cast live podcast i assume but um, but anyway, so wow. so heavy content coming your way. But you know about this Phantasm three and four. It's interesting because I couldn't believe how long we ended up talking about those movies. Because in some ways they're less remarkable than say other films, and but still <laughs> we spent a lot of time, and I think it's really fun. So if you're into that franchise. Make sure you check out the Sci-Fi Podcast to catch the gripping conclusion of that crossover review. Right, right Dave? Absolutely. And Matroid really is into that whole series. That's one oh, yeah. of the things I think that made it uh, so interesting is that uh, he really is. And um, and I don't He's know a that super Station, fan. without giving too much away, I don't know that Station shares in his enthusiasm <laughs> for no. him. So. Right. <laughs> Which is funny. I mean, there there's a lot of humor in it too. But mm-hmm. oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed, it. and I I like the name they uh, they they uh, they my uh, my sci-fi name Dave Bowman. Yes, yes. Uh, I like that. I like that. That is great, and that is for the sci-fi nerds out there, which we love. Um. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so before we jump into this Frankenstein stuff, because I do want to get into it. Um. I I've been dying for a couple weeks to tell you guys this is the creepiest thing. My little son's eight years old. He's an artist of sorts. And he did this painting totally on his own. It's like this watercolor. And he's like, hey, dad, look at this painting. And I, and I picked it up. And guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like get a laser copy version of this and put it in the show notes, down in the <laughs> show notes. You're not going to believe it. When I, when I looked at this thing, it's the Mothman. Like... It, it, really? It freaked me out. It gave me chills. I mean, the wow. eyes are dead on, like the way they always portray yeah. or depict the Mothman. That's what he did. And I'm like, so um, what is this? And he's like, oh, I just wanted to paint a ghoul. And I'm like, I'm like you, you, sir, painted the Mothman right there. And it's really wow. freaky. So I'm going to put that in the show notes. I got to get that copied so you guys can check it out. I was afraid you were going to say he painted the Babadook, so it could be a little worse. Yeah, I guess it could be. <laughs> but but being from West Virginia, as I am, not far from Parkersburg, incidentally, um, you know, the Mothman's serious business to people. Yeah, it holds a little more significance. Yeah, <laughs> that's, interesting. That's right. So anyways, um, let's jump into this. We'll start out. Um, Josh has got some great historical context for us, and we're going to just begin with our feature review of Frankenstein from 1931. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Oh, it's alive. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. (laughs) To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! (laughs) 
to prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! This was a really fascinating rewatch for me because I guess I watched The Wolfman and Dracula a little more than I watched Frankenstein, hmm. which I hadn't realized because I've always thought as Frankenstein is maybe the best of the films. Um, but I realized I think I watched Young Frankenstein more than I actually watch 1931's Frankenstein. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's so easy was, to get them mixed up too. They do have a lot of similarities, obviously. And um, yeah, I... Um, it was interesting rewatching it and also having read the novel not too long ago, realizing how much the 1931 film varies um, from Mary Shelley's original work. And so I did a little bit of research, um, just basic online research, and I watched the commentary in a, in a, in a documentary um, about the making of the 1931 film and got a little bit of information I thought I'd share with the audience. And you guys can feel free to jump in. Mm-hmm. Or you like. So we all know about the famous uh, scene that Dave's talked about several times on the show that's depicted at the beginning of Bride of Frankenstein um, about the night that uh, Frankenstein was created. But um, it's not exactly how it happened. And uh, Mary Shelley did write about this in the reissue of her novel um, as part of the introduction. But basically, the book was first released, or I guess it was first imagined in the summer of 1816. Um, so it was Mary Godwin at the time. She was dating uh, the poet Shelley, as well as Byron uh, was there with with them. And it was it was the rainy evening, as we've talked about before. And uh, I guess Mary was laying on the couch and heard Shelley and Byron uh, talking about this idea about. Um, uh, you know, the nature of life and whether or not uh, a human being could be reanimated and all, a lot of these issues. And then she slept and she dreamt a lot of what we know of as Frankenstein. And um, a lot of people say that Shelley was the basis of, of the Victor Frankenstein character. Um, but that when she, when she woke, she kind of told them the story of Frankenstein, which I think is awesome. Yes. Um, it took 21 months between um, having that dream to get the book finished and published. Um, it's one of the most reprinted works in history. It's currently in the public domain. And um, it, there are a lot of things that differ from uh, that original writing to the way Frankenstein is traditionally depicted. And a lot of that has to do with the 1823 uh Play and by 1823, I mean, which is really soon after the release of the book, which apparently was a huge hit. Um, in 1823, there were already at least five stage versions of Frankenstein. Some of them were comic, some of them were horrific, um, but they were there. And one such uh, stage play was written by a man named Richard Peake, and he wrote uh, a play called The Fate of Frankenstein in 1923. And that would become the basis for almost all of the future stage plays and kind of the story that we know as Frankenstein. He introduced this elaborate creation sequence, which is not in the novel at all. In fact, in the novel, it's very pared down. Um, uh, Richard Peake introduces the idea of this assistant, Fritz, um, who was non-speaking at that time and, you know, has kind of come up, 
later would be identified as kind of this Igor character, mm-hmm. but he names him Fritz um, in, ni- in 1823, which is insane to think about. I think I may have said 1923 earlier. I meant 1823 if I did. Yeah, and the novel was published in 1818, right? Correct, yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's 21 months after... Um, the the dream, which actually was in March of 1818. So we're coming up here on, if, Jay, if you want to do the math, I bet you'd be really excited to uh, 100 or 200 and what, two years later? Yeah. This month, wow. um, Frankenstein was published. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. And um, so anyway, um, Richard Peake's stage play, The Fate of Frankenstein, was was the basis for the film Frankenstein 1931 about a hundred years later. Um, and what they had done is when they had done um, the Bella Lugosi Dracula universal bought the rights to a, the stage play of, of Dracula. And um, they found that to be more, um, I guess, beneficial than buying the rights to the Bram Stoker novel because they, it was already kind of, um, reworked for the stage and so they had enjoyed that and so they also ended up doing that with with frankenstein as well they bought the stage version of frankenstein and just coincidentally i've also found that uh, that's why frankenstein is never um, produced as a production in the united states Um, it has something to do with uh, the rights that were purchased by universal and even i think to this day um it's only been done as a stage production in the UK. Wow. But anyway, um, so those changes were made. Um, and those were, you know, those are kind of big for what we know of as, as Frankenstein. And also in the 1931 film, we get some odd changes like changing Victor's name to Henry, but then giving, his best friend, the name Victor, just kind of a weird choice. Yeah. Um, the look of the monster is completely developed by, uh, you know, the makeup crew for this film, as well as Boris Karloff himself, uh, to some degree. And that goes on to be the iconic image that we associate with Frankenstein. So I don't know. There were a lot of interesting things as I looked into the background of this movie that I'm sure some of those others will come up as we talk about it. But. And, and even the monster himself in the book, right? He's more of a malevolent, like he, he's more aggressive than this. This um, ver- Well, he's in, he's always intended to be sympathetic, but he, yeah, he, right. I think he is more malevolent to some degree. He, um, you know, in the book he speaks, and that was something that um, Richard Peake changed in 1823 in his stage play. He's, in fact, verbose. And he goes on for chapters and chapters talking um, in, the, in the original novel. Um, he's very eloquent, in fact. He has a large vocabulary, in fact. And uh, that was something that was changed um, in 1823. You know, she did her revision in 1831, which is when she uh, wrote about, you know, the story of how this uh, you know, story came to pass. I guess that that um, that story about that fateful evening um, in Switzerland, and um, yeah, and ever ever since then, really, her story has not been the main telling that we look to now. And I guess they did Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That that is pretty close to it. And this 2016 Frankenstein borrows elements from the original 
um, that the 31 film doesn't have. And we'll talk about some of those as we go on. Even Victor Frankenstein, which I saw this week, um, borrows a lot from Mary Shelley that's not in any of the kind of c- cinematic tradition. So mm-hmm. that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Dr. Shock, you are our resident classic film expert. Um, I know you've seen this movie a lot. And so uh, just kind of launch into it with some of your thoughts about uh, Frankenstein 1931. Well, this is my favorite um, of the classics. This, This is my, and it always has been. I mean, going back to years and years ago when I when I'd first seen all of these movies this was the one that always stood out for me um and it's right really right from that opening scene where they're where they're just sort of uh, hanging in the graveyard mm-hmm. um you know that you know get down you fool it, it's just there's something about the way that 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 was framed and if you look at it this was this came out right after Dracula and Dracula was very static at least the Todd Browning version Right. Um, it, it does not, he does not get very creative with his angles. The sets look great. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't get too into it. I think, you know, the, part of it was he lost some of his, some of his vigor for the project when, when Lon Chaney died, he wanted to make this with Lon Chaney. And I think he kind of lost interest in the whole thing. So, you know, he didn't put a lot into it, but James Whale, on the other hand, he really, it's dynamic, you know, as you're watching Frankenstein with the close-ups and, and, and with everything that he, that he does in this film. And that's part of what I like about it. And also, um, something that that's, doesn't get talked about enough, I think, is um, the performance of Colin Clive, you know, as the, as the, uh, as the scientist, Henry Frankenstein. Yeah, he's excellent. You know, he, he, he really is. And he's, you know, that, that whole scene of, um, that they ended up cutting out, um, for, you know, for, for being blasphemous, you know, you know, by God, now I know what it's like to, to be God. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, he he handles it so well. Uh, and again, we get Dwight Fry. Now I think Dwight Fry was a little creepier in Dracula. Um, but it's kind of interesting to see him come back as Fritz. Um, yeah, and we even get the, it's funny cause we get the warning at the beginning. I think it's, yeah. um, <laughs> Edward, Edward Van Sloan, uh, yeah. you know, this, it will, I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and it's a, he stopped short of saying, and if you don't think you'd take it well, you know, he's, he's like, they weren't about to say, get, get your money back. Yeah. Yeah. The theater. Exactly. They, they weren't going to take it that far. He's like, well. You've been warned. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought that was always kind of funny. That. It's like they weren't quite at the point where they were felt confident enough to say, "Go get your money back." Uh, he had done something similar to that at the end of um, Dracula earlier that year as well. He had a little piece, and he plays Van Helsing, obviously in Dracula. Yes. Uh, he's Doctor Waldman or Waldman or something in this film. Mm-hmm. He's also in the Mummy as well. But um, yes, he is. That's right. He's in the Mummy also. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of interesting, but he's a Dracula and Dracula's daughter as Van Helsing, I should say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, I had read somewhere that um, you know, well, the, there's the, the whole thing, the famous thing about Bella Lugosi, a uh, Bela, sorry, Bela Lugosi, um, t- not wanting to take the role of the monster. I don't know how true that is, um, and I haven't gotten to that point in the book actually, where uh, they're talking about it. Supposedly, 
there was something out there of of Lugosi doing a test, or at least in the makeup of the monster, as yeah. far back as thirty one. So I listened to the commentary, and there is a historian on the commentary who does an incredible job. By the it way, it really is a great. That's one thing that these sets do. They have these the great commentaries. Is, yeah. is it, and I can't remember which one it is, but yeah, I've listened to all of them, and they're all excellent. He talks about um, Lugosi had the role initially, or at least was vying for the role, and did his did a test makeup, um, and it was ridiculous. And he had wanted to base the character on kind of the Gollum, and so he had this oversized head because he wanted his head to be bigger than his body, oh, wow. and um, it apparently just looked ridiculous with this gigantic head. And a la Frank. <laughs> this yeah. year, last year. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That would be hilarious. <laughs> and um, apparently, yeah, the studio head didn't appreciate it. And uh, he quoted him saying he laughed like a hyena when he saw Lugosi in the makeup. Um, <laughs> and the makeup team said that they were really upset and that Lugosi himself thought he knew better than them. And he was uh, the, the test makeup didn't work and basically led to him not getting the roles, according to this historian on the commentary. Interesting. That is so, and this is, um, of course, directed by James Whale, as Doctor right. Shock said, and he he's the same guy who directed The Invisible Man and then Bride of Frankenstein, and uh-huh. and for those who are interested in a little more um, information on him, this is not a horror movie, but Gods and Monsters from 1998, right. starring Ian McKellen, uh, kind of chronicles the last days of. Uh, you of know, James so. Whale's life, and it's a it's a yes. good movie, and they even have some some recreations in there on the set of I know definitely Bride of Frankenstein, right? And um, yes, I'm not sure about the original Frankenstein. I can't remember. It's been a long time since I've seen that, but I know for a fact they have a recreation of when he was directing the Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, so that that's super cool. And in the screenplay for that, by the way, incidentally, one. Um, the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, and Ian McKellen himself, for those who appreciate tremendous acting, he was nominated for his role. So that's one to check out if you want to learn a little more about James Whale's personal life. Right. So, mm-hmm. But it's just a movie that, like I said, it's always it's. I think it's always going to be my favorite. Uh, it, it does have scenes in it that it's hard to talk about these movies now in terms of scares and of terms of frights because they're just they're of their time right uh, but they do have scenes in them that kind of can sort of like ooh, you know like it's they're, they're kind of um now this is this was a pre-code film so it was made you know before they started clamping down on a lot of the more you know disturbing material uh but you have the scene that i always stays with me and i know i've mentioned it before is when the father is walking down the road with his daughter and the camera's just staying with him. You know, there's this whole party going on in town and this guy is just holding his limp, lifeless daughter uh, as they're walking. It really is. It's it's a very brutal scene. And people Um, were outraged at the time more by the Frankenstein throwing her into the water, which they actually cut out in some versions. It was, it was highly censored. uh Uh, yeah, and as you mentioned, it was censored in the in the moment where he references deity, and a couple of other places, I believe, as well. But what what's so interesting about that is this was a a film that went there. I mean, Frank, the monster doesn't um, maliciously or intentionally uh, drown the girl, but no, yeah, it's innocent. But still, 
they kill the kid in this right. horror movie, and that's that's pretty intense. And I gotta say, I do like the little spoof that they had in Young Frankenstein with the uh, with the teeter totter there, whatever that thing is, you know, with the uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> with the little girl and the monster t- has sitting down on it. Yeah, yeah. and people were really upset funny. about the, um, I guess, the scenes where Fritz is provoking uh, the monster with. Oh yeah, the torch. he's pretty. He's he's brutal in that it's still ups- that's still upsetting today in my opinion actually yeah yeah absolutely and then they were also upset that it showed a hypodermic needle being injected into the monster wow yeah yeah and speaking of the monster if i could just say two other bit little factoids please do um one is that as early as 23 1823 that is um, he is referred to in that play as Frankenstein, named after his creator. Mm-hmm. Um, and several times throughout that play, he's called Frankenstein uh, by characters in the in the play. So I think that's interesting. I know you know, you know, the nitpicky tend to get after you if you call the monster Frankenstein. But even very early on, within you know just a couple of years of release, two hundred years ago, people were calling him. Frankenstein. So it yeah. does happen. That's um, interesting. I'm glad you if brought I slip that up. up a couple of times during this episode. Don't get after me. Well, yeah. And I, I think everybody, I'm glad, so glad you brought that up uh, at Wolfman, because I think everybody does that. And we horror fans like pride ourselves on the fact that we know that he's called the monster and Frankenstein's the doctor. But the fact is in, in pop culture, it has become, as you say, it has become like, you know, when you say Frankenstein, that's who they picture is the mm-hmm. monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then further, another little tidbit that came from that play is that, um, you know, when they wrote the cast of characters that were appearing in the play, you know, the person playing the monster was given a big question mark back in 1823. And they, um, they kept that in the credits for the 1831 film, at least in the opening credits. In the opening. Yes, exactly. The, yep. uh, Boris Karloff does not receive a credit. It says the monster question mark, which I love. And mm-hmm. it's, it's funny. And I don't know if they did it in this first movie, but in some of his later movies, he was just called Karloff. Right. They dropped oh. the Boris off the front of it. And I don't know. I don't know. That Pretty sure he gets in Boris film. in the, yeah, I think uh, in this one, he gets film. Boris, but some of his later films, they dropped that off. He was just Karloff. Right, which was kind of kind of interesting, but yeah, I remember the um the question mark there at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, so in terms of like the themes of this film, and and of course everything that we talk about tonight, you know, it, it's weird sometimes doing a a movie podcast because we're always when when we're talking about an adaptation, there's always some debt to the book or the work that it's previously adapted from or whatever but but having acknowledged that that we know that this is mary shelley's story and all that like talking about the themes i think it's so interesting that there's this idea of going too far with science obviously and crossing over into god territory right and and i love that for a theme because um it's pretty freaky when you think about it because like one of the scariest things that we can all face in this life is the end of it. And that's our death. And, and the fact that he's able to um, conjure life again and like regenerate and, and bring this body back to life again, crosses over into God territory. Now, um, 
why do you got, and, and this is kind of a weird question and I've been trying to think of a good way to discuss it with you guys, but you know, many would argue that, that parenthood, you know, having children is a way to, uh, manifest creative powers or a godlike powers by having children. And so why do you think people were so bothered by this concept or this idea of conjuring life? Um, because, you know, people do it all the time when they have babies. Yeah, but this, I mean, obviously this is a very different sort of, this is, this is a man by himself creating life from where there was no life. Yes, that's the same thing, but you, you don't usually do it by yourself. You need to, uh, you know, that, that's... Speak for yourself, Doc. I do it by myself all the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, he's going to have one of those in there. Yeah. Um, no, I know what you're saying, though. I mean, I I just think, um, well, for one, he's reanimating dead tissue, which is right. ter- monstrous. Taboo, um, right. References in the movie... Uh, that he's practiced on animals previous to this. So, you know, I, on one hand you could say, well, that's, you know, that's scientific, uh, you know, in its basis, you know, that we always start on animals before going to humans, but it also seems kind of creepy and cruel um, under the circumstances. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. you just feel like it's, um, it's long been a taboo, that you can't <laughs> resurrect or, or play around with uh, corpses. Basically. Well, this is this is one man. This is one man playing God. Is what it is. Mm-hmm. He is taking the creation of life on himself to reanimate dead tissue and to bring it, you know, to, to bring it back to life. And he begins to. I think obviously the the this line that was censored out is. Now I know what it's like to be God. He is looking at himself as God, yeah. um, and especially at this time frame in the in the uh, in 1931, a lot of people are going to have a problem with that. I mean, that was the the primary reason for the warning at the beginning is they anticipated um, protest by religious groups, and in fact, um, if you look at some of the text um, in the in the script for that, that didn't make the cut, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. never got filmed. It's much more explicit about how it's, you know, like a sin basically to try to, uh, play, play God. But, um, mm-hmm. I tried to invite Brian, uh, Patchett, AKA brain from the sci-fi podcast on this episode, but I didn't think of it early enough for it to happen. Um, because he himself is involved in all kinds of amazing, like life saving, uh, science that's going on right now. And, um, and also he's just a genius and a movie geek. And I wanted to get his take on, on the Frankenstein story. And he reminded me, he's like, Hey, idiot, I actually wrote you an essay about why people are scared of science and you never published it. And I said, Oh yeah, that's true. So I'm going to publish that on the sci-fi podcast website. Um, and we can get a link in the show notes here so mm-hmm. people can go over and read it. But he, he did write this great essay um, about why he thinks people are afraid of science. Um, I, he listened to our episode of um, Horror Movie Podcast when we talked about the fly with Matroid. When science talked, goes too far. That science one. goes too yeah. far. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he and he has some interesting thoughts on that. He did send me a text, which I'll read 
um, if you guys don't mind, it's yeah. not specifically about Frankenstein, but he was just, we were going back and forth about this idea of uh, people fearing technology. Okay, let's hear. Um, he said, uh, the reason that people fear science and fear technology is due directly to the lack of understanding, and that by understanding something like artificial intelligence, for example, you can uh, still disagree with it, but now your argument will be based on reality. You will be able to say why you think GMOs are a bad idea, and in a way that is specific and to the point, you'll be able to say why we should be cautious with AI or drone development or driverless cars or vaccines or why CERN is completely harmless. Maybe that money should go to research that you think is more important, uh, go to research that you think is more important by understanding through learning the fear will fade away and rational arguments will begin to be made. I am happy to argue all day long, politely, of course, with someone who can reason a valid position for or against something. Under those conditions, I may even be persuaded to switch sides, but I will not even bother to enter the conversation if the person is not somewhat educated on the subject. For example, it's not worth my time to talk about something like gluten or vaccines when my opponent has no idea what the chemicals involved actually do when they are metabolized by the human body. Most of the time, they don't even understand the true nature of the chemicals in the first place. I have no idea what he's even talking about. So you're right. I don't understand those chemicals. Um, and so anyway, he's, he's talking about how we're oftentimes not even, uh, we're not even, uh, what is the word, not educated enough to even have the conversations, let alone have a good point in the conversations. And so, of course, that scares us. It scares us that there's so much we don't understand about these things. And if we um, could learn more, we might not be as terrified of the progression of science. Or maybe we would, but mm -hmm. at least we know what we were talking about. It's kind well, of yeah, I mean, cloning, is, cloning has its opponents as well. Oh, absolutely it does. You yeah. know. And see, all that makes perfect sense, what he was talking about there in his text, because if you look at any kind of like, I guess, more primitive culture or, or even our own kind of lineage back in the day, like when we would be very, um, I guess, what, what's the word, superstitious about things, and we would just chalk things up to some kind of supernatural force when really it was just some scientific matter being manifested yeah. before our eyes, you know, so. mm -hmm. there's a, um, there's a scene in Victor Frankenstein where, uh, Victor Igor and Igor's love interest are sitting around, uh, the table eating dinner and she is horrified by the, what they're talking about and their ideas about the experiments that they want to conduct. And Victor says, you know, 10 years ago, the lights in this room would have been considered magic. Mm -hmm. And that that's so interesting to set, you know, this conversation at that period of time when 10 years earlier it would have been magic. Um, and, you know, we can obviously relate to those types of things with cell phones, you know, the, the iPhone would have been science fiction when I was in high school. Right. Just plain and simple. So, right. um, you know, I think that's interesting. And well, yeah. And so speaking directly to the text that we see here in um, the 1931 Frankenstein I know that that God line about, I know what it's like to be God. I, it's my understanding. That's not in a novel, right? As I, No, there's nothing so, like that creation. The entire creation scene is created. Yeah. And that, so nothing so blatant, but so it seems though that the film takes the stance 
tell me tell me if we could argue this any other way it's almost like the film suggests that in order to be god all you have to be able to do is create life that's like the the prerequisite <laughs> ability or whatever and yeah. I, I think that's kind of interesting to me it's like well i think for this character anyway right you know yeah. for henry frankenstein that's what what he's looking at yeah yeah, that's Definitely. pretty cool. Now, so, something else, and I'll talk about this more when we discuss the 2016 film, because um, I actually think that film underscores it, this point a little stronger even, but in this 1931 version, it's present as well. The monster, especially the way Karloff plays him here, he, he's sad and he's pitiful. I mean, I mean, it's, it's sad to watch him. He's kind of lonely and... Um, he he just feels he really seems unloved and abandoned by his his creator and he, right. he and I think there's a theme an underlying theme to Frankenstein especially in the new film we're going to talk about of um you know the creator not being very warm and loving and that that once the creation is that pitiable being which any of us could identify with sometimes is maybe on its own you know, there's that concept there. And I think that's a cold side, a cold theme that runs through these films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, he wasn't, as I think I touched on earlier, um, the screenplay had really gotten away from the sympathetic monster um, idea that, you know, had been so prevalent in the book and, and earlier manuscripts. It was really making the monster of villain and they introduced this idea of the abnormal brain, um, you know, the abnormal brain as it were mm-hmm. um, in the 1931 <laughs> screenplay. That wasn't also, that also was not in the book or in the 1823 play. Um, that was a new idea for the movie. And, and maybe just to compress time, the historian on the commentary suggests maybe it's just because they, you know, they need to compress time. So they need to give a reason that Frankenstein can become uh, so violent so quickly. Yeah. Um, so they give him this criminal brain, which they play with a lot in the later films. They really use the criminal brain a lot um, as the but, universal films go on. But it's interesting. So, Josh, are we to um, are we to understand? Do you think that in, in Mary, Mary Shelley's novel, the the transition? Well, okay. So as I said earlier, the, he's a little he's a little more aggressive and monstrous. But I wonder if they didn't have. Because the cinema is a reductive medium, obviously, and and if they didn't have to condense it so much, and and use that abnormal brain, I wonder if the very lack of humanity and the humans around him would have eventually turned him cold, because we all start out as babies, right? Just like Frank Frankenstein's monster here, and we all start out like innocent and just peaceful or whatever, and then as we grow up in this world and become conditioned and influenced by the violent, ugly, awfulness around us, it, then it makes us become that way. And I wonder if, um, I don't know if it's reading too far into it, but I wonder if that's what, what would happen in the course of this film, but they needed to kind of expedite that with the brain. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, this is a good question. But Doc, I'm with you. I mean, I totally agree. Of the classic monster movies, this one is actually my favorite too. And in fact, I've um I don't know that I've ever said this publicly, so I can't say I've always said, but <laughs> I do feel this way. If I did get in a desert island situation and I had their 
like pick one classic horror film to have to watch and that was uh-huh. it this would be the one you know right. of all those and i'm talking even like nosferatu and all that stuff wow cabinet of dr caligari i mean i think i think there's some genuine heart to this this horror film you know what's interesting about it though guys i i showed this to my son when he was six and then I showed him Young Frankenstein, and he he felt that Young Frankenstein was actually much scarier than really? this. Really? Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was really shocked. Huh. What but, scenes in Young Frankenstein do you remember? Um, well, I, I think that uh, <laughs> I think the Igor <laughs> character kind of freaks him out a little bit. And, or, or was it and, was it the scene with looking at the deco- decomposing heads? Yeah, well, maybe, and and the that, Gene that, Wilder character is pretty over the top. He's intense, yeah. so yeah, for yeah, a six that's year true. old, that's that, true. that's true. I'm a little hard to catch the humor, right, in a character like that if you're <laughs> if you're that age. Exactly, but um, I'll, I'll tell you one scene that's really interesting from the 1931 film. Um, I so when he when he reaches up like for the sun when he sees the sunshine. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of a, a moving scene. Now, um, this was written about, so I'm not going to take credit for this quote or anything. John Kenneth Muir, who is kind of, he's like a horror academic guy. He's like Kyle Bishop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I really like his stuff. Yeah. Um, he, he writes about this in his book. It's called Horror Films FAQ. It's actually quite a good book if you guys get a chance to check nice. it out. But he says, quote, in one moving scene, the monster reaches ever so lovingly for the sun, for the shining human nature and goodness that seem to constantly elude him. In Karloff's hands, what could be a throwaway moment of blindness and shock instead becomes one that embodies audience feelings of sympathy and compassion for the monster. And I think that's true. I mean, I, I don't think that we can underappreciate what Karloff did in this performance, I think is actually a very nuanced performance for this era in filmmaking. Yeah. Just so many interesting little choices, like entering the room backward. The first time we see him is such a weird choice, but so super effective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. yeah, I, I really enjoy the performance. And that three step close up. Yeah. <laughs> like when he's, when we first see him. Yeah. It's, and it's also, interesting. You know, the makeup looks so much better in this film than it does in any of the following films, which is so mm-hmm. weird because mm-hmm. money and technology and time and all of those things improve over the years. And somehow still this one works so much better. It looks so much more naturalistic. And probably a big part of that is his performance. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Now, now, Dr. Shock, are you aware of anything in particular that informed his performance. Cause I just think it's interesting that he went the direction he did. I mean, I'm not saying it's drastically different from the character in the book, but I'm just saying that it, it's kind of fascinating to me where he took this. Well, it is drastically different. Cause right. that character is talking up a storm. I do remember reading. Thing. I had, I had this, uh, what was it? Sort of like a, Graphic novel, uh, what we call them nowadays. Back then, obviously, it, it wasn't even a comic book, but it was an actual book of the original Frankenstein. And that's one thing that I did recall was that, yes, the monster did talk a lot. I mean, he's the one who came and demanded a mate, um, and he right. did have a lot of a lot of dialogue 
in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, I guess, like like Josh was saying, they went a little bit more with with the stage play uh, this time around. So I don't know, Jay. I don't know if that if there was any like hints to that in the stage play um, okay. that Karloff just lifted. I don't know for sure. I can't say. I can't say like what. Uh, what sort of inspired that? One no. thing I heard about mm-hmm. was with regard to the makeup that he asked that the makeup above his eyelids be applied very heavily to make it harder for him to open his eyes, which I thought was interesting. That um, is interesting. Like he wanted to feel like it was a chore to, to open his eyes. Right. That's neat. Yeah. And you can see that if you look at still shots of him, that's really evident. And that's a, a neat little detail there, Wolfman. But but as far as like the 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 choice not to speak is you know not to speak in this one, um, I mean that that comes down to the the script as well. I mean that that's going to be like a screenplay yeah. decision, oh, a director yeah. decision. And again, that started in in the nineteen twenty three stage play ver- or eighteen twenty three right. stage play version. Um, right. Fritz also was was a non speaking role, um, and that's something they changed in this movie. They made him speak um, where he hadn't earlier, so that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And then later on in the next film, in Bride of Frankenstein, when the monster does speak, Karloff hated it. He absolutely hated yeah. the fact that they made the, that they let the monster speak. And you know, when Lugosi played um, the monster, he spoke quite a bit, and the studio hated it, and ended up just taking it out, basically, <laughs> all the speaking. Interesting. That that is interesting. So. Um, I think, you know, I can't imagine that any of our listeners have not seen this, but it is from 1931. You know, we got young listeners. And so if you have not seen this film, oh my goodness, I really strongly encourage you to go back and check it out. I actually love that. I don't own it. I need to own it. What is it called? The Legacy Collection, you guys? Is that... What's I have the Legacy Collection, but uh, there's, yep. there's new Blu-rays that the have been... classic released. monsters. Yeah, the universal classic monsters. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, yeah. they're strong. The yes. new Blu-ray releases. But, but if you just wanted to kind of test the water with your toe, you know, this is on Amazon for two ninety nine, and it's oh, definitely yeah. worth checking out that way. But um, oh, yeah. I bet those Legacy Collection DVDs are cheaper now that the new Blu-rays are out. Um, mm-hmm. They were released at the time of Van Helsing. Uh, was released you know, as kind of a Van Helsing promotion. They did finally re-release Creature from the Black Lagoon, but for a while there, when it went out of print, you it was like seventy bucks on Amazon for that for that oh, yeah. Legacy collection. Uh, they did re-release uh, it. They did like a reprinting of it, and I got that actually at Walmart of all places. I found it up at Walmart. But what's really cool about the Legacy? So even when you get the Blu-ray, the classic monsters. You hold on to the legacy because it has the other movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know it. It has the the follow ups to the to Dracula, the follow ups to Frankenstein. It has all of them on there. Yes. Yeah, which the which the Blu Ray does not. The Blu Ray is straight up the movie. It has a ton of extra features. The Blu Ray is awesome. Yes. Um. And and you always the only thing I would say with renting it online is I don't believe you get the commentary track by doing that. And like Josh was saying. The commentary tracks for all of these are just incredible. You yeah. learn so much about them. They're, the they're pretty affordable, them. too. I mean, yeah. yeah, if you have no idea, if you've never watched a black and white film and you're not sure if you can 
you know, watch something like this, maybe, maybe rent it first. But if you know that you like the universal monsters guys, it's, it's, they're totally worth buying. These collections are really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. Even the, even the one they did way back when, I mean, all of them are just interesting that they're really well done. I back you. It's incredible. So, so let's wrap up this review with our final thoughts and uh, ratings on it. And um, we'll start with Dr. Shock. Well, Frankenstein's a 10 for me. Um, it's, it's my favorite of the universals. Um, and, you know, for a lot of different reasons, you have the, uh, like I said, that opening scene in the, in the cemetery and then the scene with the father. But it's also the performances of, of Colin Clive, of, um, of Boris Karloff, um, as Mae Clark in it as well. I didn't mention that. She's probably best known as getting the, the grapefruit fruit in her face from uh, James Cagney and the public enemy. Yeah. But uh, she's in this movie. Uh, it's just Dwight Fry is awesome. Man. Dwight Fry is, is in it. He's back as well from, from, uh, from Dracula, him and Edward Van Sloan both return, uh, which, which it's just, it, it's like it, Dracula sort of set the table, but Frankenstein, I think is the one that showed, okay, here's what you really can do with it. Yeah, You know, if you've got somebody there who doesn't just say, well, let's put an armadillo in Dracula's castle um, and just set up the camera there and just roll and let's go. Um, you know, and I'm not I'm not trying to take anything away from Dracula. I think it's an awesome movie. And I think, you know, a lot of it is because of, of Bela Lugosi. But when you see this movie and, and how just how much more dynamic it is and, and how the, the camera moves and what James Whale did with it. Uh, this is what really showed people, hey, this is what, you know, you can do with with this kind of movie and, and what you can make this kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is it, – and it's always going to be that for me. It's always going to be my favorite. I'm with you, Dr. Shock. So you give it a 10, is that, and I'm assuming you're telling people to buy it, right? Abs- absolutely. And so, absolutely. So which collection then? If they're going to b- go buy this, are you saying buy the Legacy Collection or buy this Universal I'm, Monsters I'm saying- Blu-ray? I'm saying, well, I'm saying you can't go wrong with with whatever you buy. Okay. Any single one of them that you get, because with the Legacy Collection, like I said, you get the other movies as well. Uh, you get The Bride of Frankenstein. You get The Son of Frankenstein. And that's a good me, movie. It's a trilogy. For me, The Frankenstein is a trilogy. Everyone likes to look at, you know, the, the original and The Bride. Son of Frankenstein, for me, is just as strong and features what I think is Bela Lugosi's best performance i even think it's better than dracula i think so, that's a good movie too by the way absolutely i back yeah. you yep so i would say you got to get the blu-ray if, if you if you like the classic films but if you're a little unsure it's still worth buying and get the legacy and even if you got to go back and get like the first one they released way back when it doesn't matter you're still going to get the commentary track you're still going to get some of the extras and it's absolutely worth it Heck yeah, I back you on that. And yeah, so for me, this is a Frankenstein 1931. Everybody's going to fall over. But Josh, I'm giving this a 10 out of 10. I actually, I do. I know, right? It's black and white. It's slower paced and all that stuff. But um, I think that this is one of those horror films with heart, I think. And what I mean by that is there's more to it. It has it has brains <laughs> to it, so to speak. There there's there's something to the horror. It has these actual themes running through it that are kind of chilling if you spend any amount of time thinking about them and pondering them. 
And we'll talk more about that in the next review. But this film right here, another thing that I think is important to remember is that in terms of like cinema history, I mean, it's argued the first film ever is about 1895-1896 and that they're not like we recognize them today. And so this is very young in in the pioneering days of cinema. And really there have been very few quote unquote monster movies. So this is one of the original monster movies that launched horror cinema as we know it today. Absolutely. I mean, you could look at the, <clears throat> definitely look at the the vampire as a monster, mm-hmm. uh, even in Nosferatu. But if you look at the thirty one Dracula, he's very he's very uh, human. Right. It's it's a very human character. This is without a doubt a monster. Absolutely, you know? he is. Yes, he is. And so this is a ten out of ten. I say buy it. And I'm I do not have the Universal Blu Ray thing, but I have um, borrowed the Legacy Collection from a friend. And I loved it. And so that's the one I would say. I say buy the Legacy Collection. What do you say, Joshua? Um, This is not my favorite of the Universal Monster movies. I don't even know if it's in my top five. Really? But I don't disagree with everything you guys are saying about its quality. I think it's a huge breakthrough for horror cinema, um, particularly because of things like the cinematography. And I just think that the... Sets are so beautiful here. Um, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is the classic creation scene, the, you know, the oh. Dr. Frankenstein's lab. Um, now, that was inspired by the scientist lab in Metropolis, um, according to studio notes, but um, it just had some amazing things going. The machines in there were really working. It was the electricity is really flying. Um, they had found a guy who could build those machines and <laughs> he was in there, you know, <laughs> making these crazy contraptions that, you know, ultimately I'm not sure what they do, but they look incredible. Yeah. No CGI back then. So totally nope. iconic. Yeah, real. Right. Those sets are just gorgeous. And the cinematography is gorgeous. The only downside on the set dressing for me is the is the mountains scene particularly since we're supposed to be in switzerland like the, those do not look like the swiss alps or any to me like <laughs> those are some pretty ugly uh right. rocky hills that are running around through the, this whole time but um other than that I, I think yeah the movie is just fantastic and and i totally agree with you guys i'd say it's a 10 um, it's a must own for people who care about horse cinema. I think the legacy collection is a great starter kit. If you want to kind of get into classic monster movies, um, it's cool because you get, if you're on a budget, you get, you know, three to five movies on each of these discs that you buy. And again, they're probably super cheap now on Amazon. Now that the Blu-rays are out of it, you know, you get the Wolfman and you get five different Wolfman movies to watch. Right. So I, I recommend uh, the legacy collection. If you're kind of on a budget or you're trying to kind of figure out if you like this kind of stuff, but if you know, you love it and you want to get the best quality picture and you're that guy um, or gal, Definitely check out the Blu-ray. It's a beautiful transfer, awesome features, and and the Legacy Collection has great special features as well. Uh, but it's mostly just it's mostly just the movies, and also you have to deal with the occasional Van Helsing promotion, which is kind of. A- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I saw within it was within the last year. I was at like Fye. I don't know how nationally <laughs> prevalent that store is, right? I have one here. So. Okay. Well, I think I saw the Legacy Collection there for Frankenstein. It was like 
20 bucks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's reasonable for sure for as many yep. movies as you're getting. So, yep. Okay. So, uh, at this point in episode 83 of Horror Movie Podcast, we're going to hear <laughs> some thoughts from the Wolfman Josh Legary on Victor Frankenstein. I just wanted to give a quick mini review before we get to the second half of our verses. Um, we were unsure what the second film was going to be earlier in the week. We thought maybe we would do Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, Dino actually recommended that we try the 2016 version, um, which I'm glad he did. Thank you, Dino. Uh But before he did, I was also looking at Victor Frankenstein as a possibility just because I hadn't seen it. And so I just wanted to kind of report on what that film is. Uh, to our listeners, uh, in case they haven't seen it, um, it is currently streaming online for like a four ninety nine digital rental, I believe, and yes. uh, you know, available on Blu ray and DVD. Um, this is an interesting movie. It fa- it's it's really good in a lot of ways. It's written by Max Landis, who's John Landis's son, um, and it stars Daniel Radcliffe and James McAvoy. Uh, Radcliffe plays Igor. And James McAvoy plays Dr. Victor Frankenstein. And this film is kind of told from Igor's point of view, basically. It's about Igor. And it's also um, because Igor is not a character that exists either in the 1931 film or in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It deviates greatly from uh, both of those, yet borrows a lot of great classic Frankensteinian elements. And so basically what you have is the movie opens at a circus Daniel Radcliffe is, uh, you know, the hunchback freak show at the circus named Igor, who they have in clown paint. And um, this beautiful woman named Lorelai, who's a trapeze artist, falls and is seriously injured. Um, Victor Frankenstein is in the audience. Um, He's at the um, circus because he's there to steal animal parts for a project he's working on. (laughs) As um, one does. Yeah. And... um, (laughs) Igor reveals himself to be a genius um, to to Frankenstein and the together the two of them save Lorelai's life uh, once she's fallen from this trapeze. At this point, Frankenstein realizes uh, this guy, Igor, has a lot of potential and can help him in his current endeavor. So he goes and helps Igor escape from the circus where he's essentially a slave um, Mm. and he's lived his entire life. And they escape the circus with um, a lot of trouble. And um, Frankenstein immediately almost heals um, Igor of his hunchback, gets him a shower and a haircut, and um, reveals a handsome young man who is a brilliant scientist underneath all of this. Uh, Is he also a wizard? (laughs) He may well be uh, in the wizarding world of of Igor, but um, basically these two guys set out um, on a, on a project that I'm sure you you can guess what that is. Igor isn't totally sure what it is at first. And he's kind of following Frankenstein's lead, but he's willing to do all of the work that Frankenstein brings his way. And it's slowly revealed what they're working on. Um, Some of it is classic some of it is totally new and invented just for this a lot of it is totally new and just invented for this but it's a really fun ride it reminded me more of those sherlock holmes films with um robert downey jr than it did any frankenstein film especially in the first 
third or so. That's a great uh, way to say it, Josh. Now I know exactly what to expect from this. Yeah. And as they started to get into it, they had characters from the Sherlock television series. Um, Scott Andrew Scott, who plays Moriarty, people would recognize if they watch the Sherlock television series. He is awesome in this. He plays an inspector who is on um, hunting down Igor and Frankenstein, and they have these amazing conflicts that deal a lot with this kind of um, the sin of trying to play God. He's a very religious man, and Frankenstein is very anti-religious, and they have these amazing. Um, conflicts in this movie which are just really fun and invigorating scenes between these two guys and they're just both such quality actors it's a lot of fun it does go into horror territory about halfway through which i did not anticipate um based Mm -hmm. on the first half um and it ends in a pretty classic frankensteinian way um pretty kind of gory and horrific but there's a lot of cgi and that stuff really none of the monster stuff although it is there uh, did not work for me as well as the character stuff, which was really strong, mostly because there are just so many fine actors in this movie. But um, I would give Victor Frankenstein a 7.5. I think it's absolutely worth a rental, um, especially if you're into you know all of the Frankenstein stories that you know I, as we've been going through them all. It's just fun to see different variations on it, and this is a really good one. Uh, it's it's mostly. Um, this kind of adventure with a bit of comedy and whimsy, but there's some horror in it and uh, some really great thematic stuff. So the subgenre breakdown is first, um, like first adventure, thriller, horror. Okay, gotcha. Nice. And Josh says seven point five, right? Oh uh, yeah, seven point five and rent it. Nice. Okay. That's Victor Frankenstein. I've been curious about that. I did not see it in theaters last November because I was like, no. <laughs> but I mean, but, it really, seriously, but you, add, you know, take the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movie and add a couple monsters, and that's where you're at. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a, an excellent way to describe that because I know exactly what you're talking about now. So, and that's kind of intriguing. I'll admit. So it's fun. It's totally fun. Okay. Excellent. Well, speaking of fun, who do we have to thank for this? Dino, you say, for the Frankenstein 2016? I believe it was Dino. I'll double check as we talk about it, but yeah. Okay, so at this point, let's. I've been dying to move into our feature review of Frankenstein from 2016. I have discovered the formula for life. You'll be perfect. You'll be beautiful. He was never born. He does not exist. He is nothing but clay. We can all breathe life into him. He's alive! (laughs) This is not what I intended. The cells didn't replicate correctly. Get through the Okay, guys, I, I gotta tell you something about this movie. And I got to tell all the listeners right up front, never, ever have I been more wrong about my initial impressions of a film, I think. Honest to goodness, because you know how 
like for example, when you stream something on Netflix and you start it, and within the first five minutes is when you decide you're like, am I gonna subject myself to the rest of this? Or am, am, I, am I di- am I diving in or am I jumping out? Yeah, am I gonna turn this off? Well, when this thing opens, okay, it, I mean it it jumps right into it. It starts right away, and you see the monster, Frankenstein's monster, open his eyes. And he's this very good-looking, attractive young man. And I'm like, nope, this isn't Frankenstein. Forget this. I'm mad. You know, I was like all jerky about it and stuff. <laughs> and um, I just, and the reason I'm making a big deal of this is because I want to save and prevent the horror fans out there from doing what I almost did, which was I almost bailed on this thing. I almost jumped out and said, you know, and honestly, I would have. If I, if we weren't reviewing this, you know, I, I would have bailed, but I was like, okay, I'm going to hang in there. And man, was I wrong, guys. This thing breaks open, and wow. I'm just extremely impressed. Um, this is inspired by uh, the Mary Shelley novel, of course. It was written and directed by Bernard Rose, and you've got this uh, married couple uh, played by uh, Carrie Ann Moss, who's wonderful, and then you yes. all, and then you also have um, Danny Houston as Victor Frankenstein himself. Danny Houston's one of those guys. Whenever I see him, I always perk up a little bit because he's he's a very interesting actor. Yes. Um, horror fans will know him out from Thirty Days of Night yes. as the leader of the of the vampires that uh, that came into town. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, everything I see him in, he's always interesting, and I think he it's the same with this role. I think he's he brings something to it that also, I wasn't even fully expecting. He's also John Houston's son and Angelica yep. Houston's brother, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. But, him and Carrie Moss, every they're both of them have that effect on me, and so to see them together was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. solid. And then you got Tony Todd in this, and um, right. man, it, I mean, it's there's a lot to be happy about here. I, I just want to say that. And for people, also, this is set in modern times. This is modern day version. And honestly, just to give you a sense right up front, guys, it, it's a blend. Okay, it's modern day. And then it's a blend of uh, James Whale's or Mary Shelley's story, more accurately. And and it reminds me a little bit of Splice. Do you guys remember Splice? Absolutely. A movie mm-hmm. from 2009. It really has that feel to it for me. But um, yeah. I'll go into it more in a minute, but I don't want to hog everything. So, uh, Dr. Shock, what did you think of this? I I really liked it, too. And I'm, I'm with you, Jay. I was a little unsure at first. Um, and then I did see, I saw, well, Carrie M. Moss like is great. And then, and then Danny Houston, I was like, Oh, okay. But I definitely enjoyed where they took it, <laughs> you know, where, where the story ultimately went, uh, all of, uh, pretty much the whole thing. I thought it was just a clever way to update it, yeah. you know, to bring it into modern day. Uh, and they do, they put it, they put it right in th- with everything. I didn't even fully realize that was Tony Todd at first. Right, <laughs> you know, it was it was that sort of performance, and I got to tell you, there's uh, there's one scene at a dumpster <laughs> with, with a rat. I, yeah. I laughed, I laughed my head off with, with, <laughs> with, 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 with that scene. I just thought it was it was so well done. Um, and again, with Tony Todd, this is a this is a really good. I mean, Tony Todd is one of those actors. He appears in almost like 
he appears in a lot of movies nowadays, a lot of the independent films. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of forget like how good of an actor he can be. And I think this movie definitely reminds you of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Wolfman, tell it. What do you think? Um, yeah, I totally agree with, um, everything you guys have said about the actors. I think the cast is really strong. I think, um, Xavier Samuel, who plays Adam slash monster is so good. I mean, he really carries this film and he does it in a very non glamorous way. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned it, mentioned how beautiful he is at the beginning. Um, that does not last long. So (laughs) he, um, he just does a great job here. Um, but yeah, and of course the supporting cast is also good. The two we talked about earlier, Tony Todd. I loved seeing Tony Todd in this. Um, mm-hmm. Just did a great job. I think for me, like Victor Frankenstein starts out on having a blast and then gets kind of slightly worse and worse and worse as it goes and ends up being pretty okay. I this is like the opposite for me. This started out pretty bad for me and got better and better and better as it went, but right. ultimately it's still just kind of pretty okay for me. Oh, really? And, and, and by the end, you were just okay. I mean, with I love the end. I really love the end, but I think so much of it I didn't appreciate. Wow, really, Josh? Ultimate, yeah, I mean, I think just my ultimate overall is like it was pretty good. Oh, I'm yeah. just shocked. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to react so violently, but I was just oh, like, I, I just thought I thought for sure that that you would love this too, because so you I know how you you assume you know how people are gonna feel about a movie. You know what I mean? There, there's the moment um, when I was like, oh, I think I might love this movie. Was um, when he's got this cell phone and he's walking down the street with his cell phone. Yeah. Right. Um, I was like, "This is amazing. <laughs> this is a <laughs> this is a brilliant scene." Um, and but I don't know. I just think I really disliked how it started. You mentioned it starts right away. I think that's a bonus and a drawback. Like it starts at the zero minute mark, where the Frankenstein nineteen thirty one is at the twenty minute mark. That's right. true. That's and true. This movie is twenty minute mark is where the thirty one the nineteen thirty one movie is at the forty minute mark, and so it's very you would expect the pacing to be very different. It is initially, it mirrors a lot of the scenes. I didn't appreciate all of the scenes that added in. Um, and I just found, I don't know. I found a lot of the early goings pretty bland. I had a problem with the way they did the little girl scene, but yes, yes, I agree. Ultimately, it's really great by the end. So, Okay. I'm I'm sorry I can't contain myself anymore. My biggest gripe about this, the like the thing that I really, I mean I'm taking off like maybe a whole point to one and a half points on this, is that you have this voiceover narration by yeah. Monster, and and it is as you've said as um, described earlier, uh, it's very eloquent. He's using these gigantic, super intelligent words. And so we're getting this narration and it's almost like, um, I don't know, not, not thoughts necessarily. It's just like (laughs) this character is watching this movie of his life or something. And he's telling us about it and filling us in on all the stuff we're not privy to within the world of the story. And that was super disappointing to me. Um, Yeah, I but that hated is closer that. to the that is closer to the novel though. Yeah, true, true. But and it kind of reminds me of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from '97 to some degree. Too. Yeah, I mean, I I I kind of hated that. 
I mean, I was so bummed about that. It made me really sad. I mean, I think Bernard Rose, writer-director, I think he he nailed so much of this. But, man, that was a huge mistake for me. But, Can I just say one thing about that? I, I yeah. really enjoyed that. And I and uh-huh. I wonder how much of it's taken from uh, Mary Shelley's book directly. I, without, knowing, without knowing for sure, I have a feeling a lot of it was. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because just what he was saying and the style in which he was saying it, I would not be surprised if that was lifted verbatim. Yeah. I think it's beautifully written. Um, I think my one problem with it, which is a big problem with it. And I don't know if this is a spoiler. So if I could just give a, um, I think it's minor, but I want to give like a 10 second to 15 second minor spoiler alert here. I think um, he never gets to that level of, fluency by the end of the film i was thinking the same thing and that's you know, all, that's really dumb that it ends and he's not up to the point where he's been narrating the whole time i think if right. simply if he would have gotten to that point it wouldn't have bothered me at all because i right. actually enjoyed the inclusion of it in the okay yeah now see i could go with that and i could agree with that but yeah i think you guys are 100 percent accurate i bet you that is pulled because didn't you say that the novel net by this time is in public domain yes and, it is, and, yes. and the narration i'll give you this the things that he's saying are are profound. Like it's uh-huh. very well written. It's beautiful, and at times you're like, "Wow, that was profound." That's like deep thoughts by Jack Handy. But like, like on the other hand, it's like <laughs> I just wish he wasn't saying this to me. And it's like, okay, where is he right now? Is he in my ear? Like, like it's just weird that he's outside the universe of this film, narrating about his life. It's bugged yeah. me. And I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another scene that I thought was was really. Well done, and it was the reaction of, of one specific actor. And I don't know how deep we want to go into this with, with spoilers, but there's a scene late in the film where there's a there's a reunion, um, mm-hmm. and he's brought down and shown something by uh, the doctor, by um, you know, by Danny Houston's character, saying, "Hey, look, this is mm-hmm. you know where we're what's happening." Right. Um, his reaction to that, I thought, was was interesting. Like the 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 monster—that's what he calls himself. Even monsters' reaction to that, yeah, was interesting. But what really got me was the lack of reaction from from Doctor Frankenstein, from yeah. from Danny Houston, almost as if, oh, no big deal. We'll start again, right? You know, it just the, the the way he approached it, and and you know, you you saw that. There, you saw that with with the way he did not react to what to what monster had done. It's interesting. Um, I thought it was I thought it was really interesting. Sort of lo- sort of a looking into Doctor Frankenstein that he is so detached from it. It is total science for him, which is not what it was for Carrie Ann Moss's character. Um, for him, it was just this is almost like a thing I've created and I will create again and I will. You know, it's and that that he was, you know, with what happened to him, um, you know, the monster says ugly and he has a different way of putting it. It's just I thought that was very a very interesting sort of way to spin that character, Mm -hmm. you know, just a total detachment. I mean, not completely, uh, I want to say uncaring, uh, which I think it is to a degree, but I think it's even a little bit, you know beyond that even it's just it's just totally clinical 
Yeah, and I really, and I'm glad you're bringing this up, Dr. Shock, because Victor Frankenstein's kind of detachment, I think, plays into um, the way that Bernard Rose kind of underscores the the themes of the the novel or the the 31 film, whichever you want to say. I think it's more inspired by the novel, right? But um, this whole idea, especially toward the end, and I won't go into the dialogue that underscores it, but there's some really bone-chilling dialogue to me that's about, okay, the theme of this film is um, that our creator or God doesn't care about us. He puts us down here and then we are on our own. And, and, and I think that in a horror film, as a believer myself, who doesn't believe that way, I, I think that's a very strong like theme. I mean, it affects me a lot. And it's like, no, like, like I feel myself resisting that, you know, mm-hmm. inside because mm-hmm. it goes against my core beliefs. And so when a film is just really cold and unfeeling and trying to illustrate that to me, it's like, it's like I have this resistance toward it. It's right. pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, it's uh-huh. scary. But uh, so, so Josh, tell what about this, Josh? Did you think so? This film gets it's very violent. It has some serious gore, serious violence, and this mm-hmm. is one of. And I don't know why. I don't know if I was just like a little sensitive at the time, but this is one of the grosser films I've seen in a mm-hmm. long time. Maybe like within probably the last ten years, I would put it in the top. Really? Maybe top five grossest. There, there were some things that were so sickening. There are there are moments in it. There's a, there's a scene with the monster with one of the um, uh, w- with another character that I was. It, it did go to a to a degree. It went to a scene that was very similar in what was that movie Irreversible? Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the very beginning of that, yeah, it's got a lot of body horror, but I don't think it goes as far as um, like Starry Eyes or. Or the one that Dave just mentioned, which I'm already blanking on the name of it. Irreversible. Irreversible. Yeah. Um, I don't. I do think, you know, the budget is. It's a low budget film, and so mm-hmm. it's limited. Um, in some of that way, it is gross, but um, but I don't think it was totally believable. I there were a couple moments when they did CGI blood where I just thought, I, I yes. like it does make it more intense. I guess to see blood flying, but honestly, like. It was unnecessary. It was unnecessary. Like it would have been just as disturbing to see all of that, you know, violence without the flying blood and the, because the blood doesn't look real to me, it's like, that's the thing. That's one of my pet peeves with, with CGI is when they do blood because they just don't make it. Even something like midnight meat train. One of the biggest, one of the only problems I had with that movie was the, the blood spurts, the blood, you know, splattering all over the place because it doesn't look real. Yeah. They just haven't quite gotten that down yet. And I agree with you, Josh. It, it was unnecessary. You didn't need it. It could have been just as violent without it, and it would have been just as, as strong without it. Yeah, there. you're right, though. I forgot there is some great gore at the beginning um, that I forgot about that's pretty intense and pretty uh-huh. um, oh, man. gruesome. Well, and, and, and there are a few... Um, I get, let's say eating related scenes like ingestion that really like, I mean, I was, my stomach was turned and I don't have a weak stomach, but I was like, oh my goodness, that's sickening. So do not eat while you watch this film. (laughs) That didn't really do anything for me. Maybe it's just, um, a scene worse in real life. And I just watched the Revenant recently, but (laughs) 
<laughs> right, right. And then another thing that that's kind of that gets in, there, and you're talking about the body uh, body horror, and it's almost like very David Cronenberg is walking out of the shower. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you don't get a really they don't give you a really good look at it, but you see enough. Everything you see is is disturbing. I mean, I had some just basic problems with this movie. Like um, he goes to a police station and when he does, he's ridiculously injured. And at that point, and they have not taken him to a hospital where the plot goes from there is insanity. Right. Um, The characters, what they're saying in the police as they're interrogating him, uh, she says he seems to have the mental capacity of a one-year-old. No, she's never saying that. Uh, your mom and dad call you monster. No, that's never happening. All right. Um, you know, I don't know. I just didn't think I didn't get why the cops in the back of the ambulance are saying, take it easy, man. And then based Knowing on what, what goes after that, do, why are you yeah. telling them to take it easy? I, right, <laughs> I, right. I can explain that. I mean, I can't explain why the guy who was saying, take it easy. And then, <laughs> and then it goes where it does. Yeah. I can't explain that, but I can't explain what you're saying about the the drastic nature and the way they're treating him. I think that that is just the equivalent or meant to reflect the scenes of like the mob, you know. Oh, I, after- I get that, but I uh-huh. think that's to me that's a something that didn't work about the modern setting in modern day Los Angeles. As corrupt as people think LA cops are, I don't think it's to the level that when there's major murder investigations. Um, of two police officers, no one's going to notice if the accused person isn't around. Like, I just don't right, follow right. that. So, um, there, you know, and there were a couple things technologically that just, I don't know, there were a few detractors for me with setting it in the modern setting. I think even setting it in like the 70s or something, or like would have solved some of those problems for me. Yeah. But in uh-huh. this day and age, I think it struggles because of just the, age of technology we live in but again it got better and better as it went so it was a fun movie i can see that um i love how this film has a real dread of progression oh yeah because as it unfolds it just keeps getting worse and worse meaning worse for this character worse um the circumstances you know, worse what happens. Like, I mean, the film gets better, but the circumstances get worse and it gets really dark. I mean, I, I was amazed at this ride I was taking. I I got up super early this morning. I got up at 5am to make sure I could get this in. And man, this thing woke me up, you guys. And I thought about it all day at work. So uh, that that was kind of um, troubling. But um, what else, Dr. Shock? Do you have any other comments about uh, the 2016 Frankenstein? No, I think it's um, that's that's pretty much it. Um, you know, it was uh, it was it was well, I, I, not surprising. Um, it's not what I was expecting it to be going in, um, and I will definitely agree that it gets better as it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is, you know, the, I think there's there's a lot to uh, a lot to like about it. And I, I liked I liked it. I thought it. The direction they took, I thought, it was pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Well, and to be clear, I just want to make sure everybody understands where I'm coming from. Um, you know, the first what? What is it? Like, I don't know, five or ten minutes. I was worried, 
But when this thing, you know, starts really taking off and getting violent and dark, which is pretty fast, uh-huh. from then on, I was like loving the film. I had a great ride uh, the whole time. I mean, the only thing uh-huh. I was really distracting from me was the narration. But um, it seemed like there was one other thing. Oh, okay. The one other thing I want to talk about is how how well I think this film illustrates, sometimes heavy-handedly, but still illustrates the lack of humanity. I mean, they they juxtapose this little seedling of humanity that's in this innocent being who's completely a blank slate, more or less. And and there's a, a, a true innocence. And then there's like all this corruption and, and just viciousness in the world around him. And the way that's depicted is a tiny bit over the top, but it's also very strong and very effective to watch it. Did, were you guys struck that way with like like how dark they were trying to make the world? And ironically, oh, yeah. the guy who's not uh, a traditional human as you would think of him um, is the most humane of everybody around him, pretty much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I agree. I really liked again that Tony Todd character and yeah. They used him really well. I even though the, the actress who played the prostitute was a good actress, I thought, and she did well. I didn't find her believable for like the education levels. I felt like she was like too classy for the role. I, that's a weird comment, maybe, but mm-hmm. she felt like too educated or something for that <laughs> for that part to me. I think she did okay, but um, so you you feel like her dialogue should have been a little more street. I just didn't know she could do the street is what I'm saying. I, I thought she felt a little too um, educated. Or, I don't know if, what the right word is. I, I see what you're saying. I, what you're saying. Yep. I didn't uh, I didn't realize it was a prostitute at first. Yeah, right. Exactly. They don't <laughs> say that initially. Uh, and then you just sort of have to piece that together yourself. Yeah. And that, that character's name is uh, Wanda. She's played by Maya Erskine or Erskine. Yeah, she was. Mm-hmm. She was great. I really liked her. Um, One other thing I loved about this film is how, um, just like all of us, okay, like everybody who has experienced our mortal lives here, um, it's really interesting to me how we all experience tragedy and we go through heartache and heartbreak. And and I think it's interesting how they show us the heartache and heartbreaks of a monster here, of this character. I, I think that's just... I can't say it strong enough. I, it was just really fascinating me. I'm like, wow. Like if you are here in this experience, there is going to be pain and there's going to be sorrow. And it reminds me of my, one of my favorite lines from the village, which is um, sorrow is like a dog. It'll sniff you out and find you. And that's illustrated yep. here in this film as well. Yes, definitely. All right. Well, um, so let's wrap up with our ratings, guys. I'm giving this an 8.5 out of 10. I say thank you to Dino, my good friend. And uh, I want to say this is a a buy for me. I mean, if you appreciate the Frankenstein tale, I think this is a, a, a really good modern take on this. If you'd like to see an updated version that's not in black and white, that's not slow paced, um, that's pretty violent and gory. I mean, this is probably for you. So I'm saying 8.5 out of 10. I'm saying buy it. What do you say, Wolfman Josh? Um, I think it's a 
good movie, um, not great movie. I think it's fun. It's intense. Um, it, it's gory, a little bit scary. It's it's scarier than a lot of Frankenstein adaptations. I think it struggles due to its um, modern setting. The modern setting, I guess, works for it and against it for me. I think the cast is excellent. I'm impressed with the director, and I look forward to checking out the director's other work um, following this. Um, really, really enjoyed the lead. I'd like to see him in some more stuff as well. Of course, love Danny Houston and Carrie Ann Moss and Tony Todd. Um, but yeah, for me, it, it falls a little bit short, although it gets better at the, at the end. I didn't like a lot of it on the way there. So I'm going to give it a seven and say rent it. Okay. And Dr. Shock. I'm coming in, uh, actually between you guys, I'm going to do a 7.5. Um, I liked everything that, that Josh was talking about with the performances, uh, it did start a little bit slow, and um, aside from the CGI blood, I thought the very end there was an unfortunate bit of CGI as well, uh, and I didn't yeah. really get into that whole final scene. Um, but other than that, yes, it's it's very well done, very you know, realistic in a lot of ways. It's a, sort of a gritty feel mm-hmm. to it. Um, so yeah, 7.5 and I'd say it's, it's, I'm going to say it's a rental at this point. Hmm. Yeah. That's neat. It's like a, a street version of Frankenstein. I like how you mm-hmm. said gritty. I mean, I think that's interesting to me. And, um, you know, I think one other thing I wanted to say is a lot of this is, is very faithful or at least pretty consistent to what we see in the 1931 film. But I mm. do think his relationship to, um, fire is kind of interesting in this film it's a little bit different than what we've seen in other adaptations and i i wanted to chime in with you dr shuck yeah i don't love the final scene a hundred percent but i'm okay with it so okay there's this there's one really bad scene i'm sorry to digress after we're done with the review but can, can we just talk about it really quick yeah the scene with the little girl um there's something i which i love doing with my kids i always did when i was a kid which is Grab a stick, stand on one side of a bridge over a river or a creek or something, throw the stick in on one side of the bridge, run over and watch it come through on the other side of the bridge. Right. <laughs> and they try to do that in a totally standstill lake where the water's not moving on a dock. And that is really ineffective. <laughs> it's like, that's not, how do you even know the water is going to go that way? It doesn't make right. any sense. Josh, this seems a little nitpicky. I mean, I agree. Yeah, the water's not moving that much when they throw it in. It's a bad. It's just. It's better to almost leave it out. I think. But anyway, I don't know. It's, I hope you didn't take off points on your rating for that. Did it's you? just a bad. It just. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't mind a, it because part it, of the overall package for. Him, well, and it well it led. It's to, just like whoever the location manager was. Like I would have if I was the director and I showed up on that day. I'd be like, what are you? What this we can't do it here. Like this is a terrible choice for like Well even and you're gonna make make sense here. You're gonna make fun of me, but even if they had somebody standing out like five feet in the water and just like like making a little bit of a current. You know, I mean that would have that would have helped. (laughs) That would have helped. There was a thing with a tractor, it seemed a little ridiculous. But I do I agree it's the angry villagers. (laughs) That was a bit much. Um that was fun. (laughs) 
There, there's a television series that was done in the UK for ITV that's coming to the United States on um, A&E that I'm looking forward to called The Frankenstein Chronicles. Oh. Um, and that's with Sean Bean. And it's about this investigative team tracking down bodies, you know, these body snatchers who bodies are disappearing and um, looks kind of exciting. Uh, it looks like a lot of fun. There's also one little line I wanted to bring up before we wrap um, from Victor Frankenstein that I forgot to mention. They just did a great job in that movie of referencing the book, the movie, all the iterations. Um, they do this thing where um, Igor says, yes, master. He throws that line in and they handle the it's alive line really well. But there's one really funny moment where it's a flip on young Frankenstein where someone says, uh, is it, they call him Frankenstein and he's like, it's Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Oh, and something else I meant to mention this earlier, but the equipment, you know, Josh, you were talking about the set pieces in the original Frankenstein from 31. Yes. Um, Mel Brooks actually pulled a lot of those sets out of the mothballs for young Frankenstein. Those are the exact oh, same ones that were used in the original 31 film. <laughs> That's, That's excellent. Cool. Good trivia, Doc. Thank you. And for if you that. go to Universal Studios to the House of Horrors, they've got a pretty great replica of that set you can check out, too. Nice. Heck yeah. Okay, and at this point in episode 83 of Horror Movie Podcast, we're going to hear from Dr. Shock. What do you got for us, Doc? Well, actually, I've been uh, starting to actually read this book. Uh, I've had it for a while, and I've used it as a reference sort of thumbing through it, uh, but I've never actually sat down and read the whole thing, and it's The Immortal Count, uh, the life and films of uh, of Bela Lugosi. Mm. And uh, it, there's an opening couple paragraphs in here that I was just going to read real quickly, and I was going to talk about a couple of his um, uh, movies uh, right afterwards. But this book, it was written by uh, Arthur Lennig. And it's interesting because he's been a, a Lugosi fan from uh, from way back. Uh, you know, he had, he had seen some of these movies very soon after they were initially released. Um, you know, he was very young, obviously, but uh, and he was a, he was a Lugosi fan when it was not fashionable to be a Lugosi fan. <laughs> you know, when when everyone was like 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 the, like the big joke in, in Ed Wood. Oh, is he still alive? We th- I thought he was dead. Right. You know that kind of thing. Um, but anyway. Just the first couple paragraphs, uh, and it's it's kind of funny because he gives a, a pronunciation in here too. Now I always say Bella, but it is Bela. Mm, okay. But he also has it as Lagoshi, like Sha, oh, okay. which I've not heard before. I've heard Bela, but I did not. He has it Lagoshi, <laughs> like that, which I'll never get my mind around. I'm never going to be able to call him that. I'm, for me, it's just going to be Lagosi. Right. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to call him Bella a hundred times too, but I, I think I could deal with Bela. This Lagoshi thing, though, I just don't think, uh, I've never heard that before. <laughs> sure. Um, but he goes, uh, so, so, he, so he says, uh, you know, Bela Lagosi, what these often mispronounced syllables evoke. For some people, he was the embodiment of dark, mysterious forces, a harbinger of evil from the world of shadows. For others, he was merely a ham actor appearing in the type of film unsuitable for children and often unfit for adults. After winning immediate fame in Dracula, he went on to become a famous horror film star. For someone who had been a matinee idol during certain parts of his Hungarian career and later starred on Broadway, becoming universally known as Count Dracula, 
was a mixed blessing. He confessed on his last he confessed to his last wife that Dracula had made him a success financially and ruined him artistically. It may have given him eternal life, but it also doomed him to an eternal night in which he would almost always be typecast as a villain. After a decade of trying vainly to broaden his range and to obtain parts that would challenge his acting abilities, he finally became inured to a career of being killed off in the last reel. In 1941, he confessed to his, in his sardonic way that he had become accustomed to dying. It's a living, he said with a shrug. <laughs> Suddenly, the career he was always lamenting ended. Advancing age and a supposed change in audience tastes had their effect. And soon after World War II, his type of motion picture disappeared. Young horror film addicts, now used to science fiction and its outer space creatures, found his found his rarely revised revived films dated, his roles hackneyed, and his style corny. And so Bela Lugosi, the once famed actor, came to be a forgotten and rather pathetic figure whose skills had been misunderstood and whose artistic abilities lay unwanted and for the most part underappreciated. The last few years of his life brought him only oblivion and sorrow, and his death from a heart attack in August 1956 in some ways proved a mercy. All right, so that uh, that's just how it opens up. It sort of gives you like a, a very, very brief overview of his career, and that's pretty much what everyone knows. He's known as Dracula. He was buried in the cape. Um, that's one of my know. favorite facts about him, that he was he laid was, to rest that he was buried, yes. in his final coffin and wearing right. his Dracula cape. And I like how the writer there, Dave, mm-hmm. kind of suggested that um, – much like a real vampire who got like who gets subjected to becoming a vampire forever, he got stuck in that same vampiric <laughs> curse. Exactly, it's really yes, interesting. He did. he did well. What I wanted to do, and I know I've talked about Lugosi's films before. I know I did a top five of his movies before, um, but instead of sort of rehashing that and going back and like re- talking about some of his, you know. Uh, better movies. I actually wanted to take a look at what are considered two of his worst movies. Oh, okay, way, for, way to build the guy up there, Dave. Yeah, like well, no, this is this is that's what I'm. Uh, <laughs> I, I obviously had there's a method to my madness. Okay, I got you. All right, um, and the two I'm going to talk about are Bride of the Monster from 1955, okay. directed by Ed Wood. Uh, perhaps even a little bit, even a little worse than that, if you can imagine, is from 1952, Bela Lugosi, or Bela Lugosi, I guess I should say now, meets a Brooklyn gorilla. <laughs> All right. Now, we'll start with um, the Ed Wood movie, uh, Bride of the Monster. Um, this is this is a movie that, um, well, being Ed Wood, obviously, it's going to – it, it goes in – it already has that sort of uh, stigma about it. You right. know, that, that, okay, this is not going to be a good film. That said – Bride of the Monster is the best Edward film that's out there. Now, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> it's a bad movie, but it's the best Ed Wood movie that is out there. It's like saying Sumac is the best form of uh, yeah, poison ivy. It's it's like praising the most polished <laughs> dog turd in the pile. But right. that's what, you know, they, they, of all of his films, if you had to sit down and watch one of them, it would be this. You're not going to walk away saying, wow, that was a good movie. It's not. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 better than Plan 9. It's better than Glenn or Glenda. You know, it's it's better. Um, oh, I can't remember. There was another one he did that I watched recently that was really bizarre. Um, but anyway, this whole thing, it's 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 set up. You know, uh, there's this, uh, Lugosi plays uh, Dr. Eric Varnoff. 
Uh, he's moved to America. He's been kicked out of his home country. Uh, he's in this abandoned building that's in a swamp or right next to a swamp. Uh, he's got his sidekick with him, Lobo, played by Tor Johnson, you know, Edward Staple, another one. Um, and he's been conducting experiments on um, anyone who, like, wanders into the property. He kidnaps them, and then he transforms them into these atomic supermen. He's trying to see if he can build this army with which he can, you know, take over the world. Uh, but there's a, uh, a newspaper reporter, uh, Janet uh, Lawton is the character's name, played by Loretta King, and her fiance, who happens to be a policeman, they start looking around, uh, at which point, you know, Varnoff, um, well, things don't go so well from, from that point on. Uh, but anyway, you know, the, the, the sets don't look good. Uh, the acting's not good. The dialogue is really bad. And that was one thing that Ed Wood, you could always depend on, is that he would, he would, what normally takes five words, he would say in about 25. You know, that was just something he did all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that's really does stand out about this is Bella Lugosi. He shows in this and in the next one I'm going to talk about that he never worked down to the material. He always stayed at a certain level. And in this one, he delivers a speech in the film where he's talking about, you know, forsaken, he's been forsaken in this jungle hell, and I'm going to prove that I was right, you didn't believe me. And It's a monologue, but he really gives it his all. Like, he does his best with this. And you can, you can, you know, it shows, it it just, it, it shows that he always, he always approached it very seriously. I mean, I remember watching, um, behind the scenes of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. They had this guy who would keep the set light and he would always enter, you know, like he would always just sort of show up and mess up a take and make everybody laugh. Well, at one point he was following behind Lugosi as Lugosi was coming down some stairs. Lugosi didn't know he was there. And then finally, I think like Lou Costello pointed him out and Lugosi turned around and uh, all she could see is he got really angry and he was like, you, and then he just laid into the guy because he always approached it, you know, very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a pretty funny clip because you know, Lugosi was not pleased. You could tell you tell in his face like he was really about to rip into this guy. Um, but anyway, he, he delivers this speech in this movie and he does a fantastic job with it. And it's the same thing with Belly Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. As bad as Bride of the Monster is, it is Citizen Kane compared to Brooklyn gorilla. Okay. Well, that title, I mean. <laughs> well, the title alone, yeah. But what this movie is, this is a comedy. And it stars stars Sammy Perillo and Duke Mitchell, who are ri- absolute ripoffs of uh, Martin and Lewis. I mean, they stole their act. As a matter of fact, they, uh, the, the agent for Martin and Lewis tried to get this movie you know, pulled off the market. They want to make a whole series of movies with these two. They rip off Martin and Lewis. Um, Sammy Perillo, I think he was a teenager when he made this. He does the whole Jerry Lewis thing. I've never been a big, I can't say I'm the biggest Jerry Lewis fan. Mm-hmm. I've liked a couple of his movies, but I'm not like, I don't usually seek out a Jerry Lewis movie, <laughs> right. but he's still better than, I mean, he's tons better than Sammy Perillo, you know, and, and, and from what I understand, Jerry Lewis actually, you know, he, see uh, this, this guy Perillo, he would, you know, when he was first starting out, Jerry Lewis gave him some pointers, then found out he, this guy completely stole his act. 
And from that point on, like, I think they got into a screaming match one point. I don't know exactly what, but as, as bad as he was, Duke Mitchell was worse. I think, you know, Dean Martin had nothing to worry about. Jerry Lewis was worried about his back being stolen. Dean Martin had nothing to worry about because Duke Mitchell, he, he, he sings a few songs in the movie. They're not very good, but what's really unfortunate is they, they end up, what happens is they end up on this Island and on this Island is, um, uh, you know, again, a mad scientist, uh, played by uh, Bela Lugosi. And what happens is he's in love with this woman who's his assistant. Well, Duke Mitchell's character comes in and then she kind of falls for him. So sort of to get his revenge, he turns Duke into a gorilla. Okay, that's what the movie is. Mm. But there's scenes with Duke Mitchell in this movie where he's walking around. I mean, he's like a sort of a manly sort of New York guy. He's wearing his shirt like tied in the front. He looks like a cabana girl <laughs> with with the way that they put this costume on him. That's all you can see. It's like from the neck up. It's it's like all business from the from the from the neck down. It's all cabana girl, and it's really unfortunate. But again, Lugosi delivers a speech in this. Now he was heavy into his addiction at this point, but yet he delivers um, this monologue that goes on for a couple minutes. And from what I understand, when he was done, and he did it, I think, in either one or two takes, um, I was, again, there was a behind-the-scenes uh, on the DVD with, actually, Sammy Perillo, who had nothing but great things to say about Lugosi. He said the whole set just stood up and applauded because he did, he nailed it. He, he you know, he gave it his all. Nice. And that's what you get with Lugosi, even when he's appearing in junk like these two movies. Yeah, so he, so he, he had a heart. He, 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 had, he had a level that he always held himself to. And what did you say his addiction was again? What was he addicted to? Uh, was it morphine, I think? Did I say heroin? It wasn't. It was morphine, I'm pretty sure. Morphine, okay. Because that's interesting. But um, yeah, well, it, it speaks to what you're describing. I did, I did say heroin, didn't I? No, it wasn't heroin. It was morphine. Okay. What you're describing here about him speaks to what um, Ephraim Katz said. He's one of my favorite, well, at least his book is one of my favorite like film references. It's uh-huh. called The Film Encyclopedia. And he said in there that uh, Lugosi might not have been as good an actor as uh, Boris Karloff, but he uh-huh. had a superior screen personality and as a personification of dark evil, had no peer in Hollywood or elsewhere. So... Yeah, I like the fact that he had heart. That makes me appreciate him even more, that he would, like, you know, give a great performance, even if the film wasn't great. Right, and, and that's really what it, what it came down to. Um, and as I was reading that book, it, it just struck me. It's like, because I think I've seen as many of his, like, bad movies, his um, Poverty Row films that he did. He even made a, a movie with the Dead End Kids, who went on to become the Bowery Boys. Uh, he, he would, that's what he was doing. You know, Hollywood stopped calling. So he was making a living as best he could. Right. Um, and, but yet he always, you know, he, he never, he never let, he never was lax. He never said, well, what's the point in a movie like this? Um, and I don't think he was as good an actor as, as Karloff. I, I do think Karloff was the better actor. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but, but yes, Lugosi had a screen presence. That whenever he was on screen, you know, he just kind of commanded your attention. Um, that, see that what what you're describing there about him, it reminds me of um, Sunset Boulevard, the character in that, 
the mm-hmm. lady, you know, I'm I'm ready for my close up. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> Mr. The, well, Norma yeah. Desmond, I think, was the character. Name. Yeah, it, yeah, it sounds kind of Norma Desmond like because, like, you know, even past his prime, he still took himself and his career very seriously. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that's interesting. Okay, so uh, th- thanks, Doctor Shock. Uh, wh- what What is the name of that book? One more time, in case people want to sure, check no it out. Sure, no problem. And, and I do, re- I do recommend it. It's great. It's called The Immortal Count: The Life and Films of uh, Bela Lugosi. By Arthur Lenning, L-E-N-N-I-G is his last name. Okay, so people can check it out there. And um, by the way, uh, the Wolfman Josh, I think you've been, you've maybe got some mini reviews for us or something. What do you got? Oh, I just want to tell people about some stuff I'm doing that's kind of strange. Um, well, we got some requests from a couple of listeners for video content. And um, I had just been thinking about different projects I've been wanting to do for a while. And one of those was watching the entire Hitchcock filmography. And so I had started doing that right around the time. I think Dina was the first person that said, hey, you guys need to do some YouTube videos. And um, I thought, well, maybe a marriage of those two ideas would be a good thing. So um, that is something that I want to work toward is do – some video reviews of the entire Hitchcock filmography start to finish um, and do those as YouTube videos. Now, of course you guys are invited to do this. If you want, we can make it an HMP thing. If not, I've also talked to Joel Robertson about possibly doing it on Dave's suggestion. Um, But yeah, I think that would be a fun thing to do. And I would love if as many of the listeners as can want to watch some of these movies along with us. It'll be quite a journey. It is that that's an, um, that's a great idea too. Yes, it I mean, is. It's very. I, cool. I, I think it's awesome. I definitely would like to be on a, on a few of them. There's no yeah. doubt. And then, just this is totally random, but um, <laughs> I've been watching so much Hitchcock. I've been really getting into kind of the whodunit vibe, and my kids have too. So we've been watching all kinds of uh, mystery shows, like really bad mystery shows. Like um, I've been watching a ton of Poirot. A ton of the old um, BBC Poirot, a ton of the old uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, but even Murder She Wrote and Psych, and all a lot of this stuff is on Netflix recently. <laughs> but I I wanted to give a shout out to a couple episodes of Murder She Wrote because there's some a couple of really fun episodes. There's one called Murder Takes the Bus that's in season one, and it's a total like one location murder mystery where these guys are on this bus and. Um, the bus breaks down and they get stuck at this little roadside diner and there's a rainstorm and someone's murdered and they have to figure it out. And that's from the very first season of uh, Murder, She Wrote, and uh, Linda Blair's in that episode. Neat. In a small part, Terrence Knox wow. is in that episode, um, who I really love from a Tour of Duty, if you remember that television show. Oh, yeah. Um, Rue McClanahan is in it. Um, Tom Bosley, of course, he was on several seasons of Murder, She Wrote. But um, and then they used the psycho music in that episode as well. So I thought that was kind of fun. And, and as a matter of fact, Tom Tom Bosley made his own mystery show. Oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. The father, father Dowling, father, the Dowling father Dowling mysteries. mysteries. Yeah. That's right. He I also was an advocate of glad trash bags. Don't get <laughs> don't get mad. Dave, get glad. <laughs> he was also I David the Gnome. 
<laughs> yes, he was. He was he was David the Gnome as well. Yes. But um and then there was one other episode that I watched randomly that had another had a little bit of a horror pedigree like that other one. This one was called Fireburn Cauldron Bubble and it was about a witch that had um, been wrongly accused or maybe possibly rightly accused back in Cabot Cove back in the witch trial days which you know of oh. course takes place in Maine. And um, Brad Dourif is in that episode. D. Wallace is in that episode. Um, and it's a lot of fun. And weirdly, who else? Oh, Bill Maher as a young actor is in that episode. Oh, which wow. Is kind of, um, which I'm not a huge Bill Maher fan, but it's funny to see him um, doing like some really young, bad dialogue. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, check out Murder, She Wrote. That's streaming on Netflix. There's That's also cool. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead, Josh. No, go ahead. I, I was going to say that it's a... Uh... Murder, She Wrote, my mother, that was her favorite show. And it was always on Sunday nights. Yeah. Um, and I remember because, you know, we'd have to we'd have to get to bed a little earlier then because it was, a, you know, going to school. But she would always be watching Murder, She Wrote. And when we went out to Universal Studios, because that was filmed and, you know, that was done on, on Universal, uh, the Universal right. lot. It was where Cabot Cove was. When we were out on... Uh, to visit the Universal. We were on, on the tram car taking the tour, and we're going over the water. And they made the you know the tour guide said, "Oh, and over here is Cabot Cove." Well, my mother starts freaking out, <laughs> and she says to my father, "You got to get a picture of Cabot Cove. You got to get a picture of Cabot Cove." So my father, as he's framing a picture of Cabot Cove off to the right, to the left, the jaws. You know, they had the jaws come out of the water. <laughs> yeah. And wow. the whole place is like screaming and everything, and he completely missed it. It's like a running joke now in the, in the family. Whenever somebody brings up murder, she wrote, my father goes, oh, that damn Cabot Cove, because he completely <laughs> missed the Jaws. You didn't see Universal. Jaws coming out of the water. He didn't see Jaws because he was framing a picture of Cabot Cove. <laughs> That's excellent. It is. Um, yeah, that was my grandma's favorite show. And so I was just, I was a kid too, and I, you know, I would... I would uh, watch it with her whenever I had a chance to. Also, for some reason, she was into Scarecrow, and Mrs. King. That was rather. Oh yeah, that's another one. I've been watching also with my kids. They like Psych, which is a really bad show in a lot of ways. But as the seasons progress, they kind of seem to be taking a cue from Community and do some really out there stuff. And one of the seasons was called like a One Hundred Clues, I believe it was called, and it takes place in an old mansion, and they are kind of spoofing Clue. Uh, the movie Clue, which is a a favorite of mine. I just think it's one of the funniest, best murder mysteries of all time. It is great. Yeah, but Martin Mole appears in that episode. Uh, Christopher Lloyd appears in that episode. Um, Leslie Ann Warren, who's Miss Scarlet in that movie, appears in that episode of Sykes. Oh, wow. Fun. That's really cool. Anyway, yeah, the, the the show I was going to tell you about it's it's a comedy mystery. It's Kolchak, the Night Stalker, and it's oh, the Night Dar- Stalker, the Night Stalker. Yeah, yeah, I actually, so I was looking for that movie. Oh, now I'm forgetting the name of the movie, but the one with the vampire that flies around. It's called the Night. Oh, um, I know what you're talking. Flyer? About. Is it the Night Flyer? That can't be right. I know yeah, it mean. is. Called, I, it's called the Night Flyer. Okay. Um, I was looking to buy a copy of the Night Flyer, and then I came across the Night Stalker, and then I started reading about the Night Stalker case of the you know the serial killer, and then I found out yeah there was that movie and television series, and I had never seen it, so I actually that's something I've been looking into. It's uh, it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Darren McGavin is in it. Everyone's going to know him uh, 
you know, well, he's been in a lot of things, but he was the father in the Christmas story. But he stars in this, and it is a horror. It's It's got comedy in it, but it's a horror mystery. I mean, what he's investigating are vampires, werewolves, doppelgangers, things like that. And it's just, they only ever made 20 episodes of it, but it does have a cult following. I mean, a lot of people, I listen to other podcasts and everyone still talks about this show. It is, it's a lot of fun. I actually have the the, the whole series on, on DVD. I picked it up at uh, FYE at the, at the local mall here for like $10. I said, wow, oh, I can't, wow. You know, can't pass that up. <laughs> Maybe after we finish the Hitchcock run, we can do a Night Stalker run. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, anyway, thanks for indulging me, guys. I just I know that we have listeners who are fans of like Scooby Doo and stuff like that. Just also enjoy the whodunit aspect, and so I wanted to bring up uh, (laughs) these two episodes of Murder She Wrote, particularly. Nice. So, speaking of witches, Josh, you want to go ahead and tease um, next week's episode, which will actually. To get us back on schedule, we're going to release on Friday, March 11th. So um, tell them about our witchy women theme. Yeah, so basically, it's Dave's theme, actually. Uh, maybe he should be introducing it. But, the, but I, you know, I wanted to save uh, my review of The Witch for a themed episode since you'd already kind of done it in a Frankensteinian episode. I thought I'd save it. And hopefully Dave can see it, too. I'm, I'm hoping to see it this week. And, and we'll, we'll incorporate a review of the new film, The Witch, with some classic witch films that Dave has selected. And then just some general uh, witch trial kind of discussion, which I think is the angle we're kind of taking on this, like witch hunters slash witch trials. Uh-huh. And Dave, um, tell us which, which movies you want to talk about. <laughs> well, the two, the two that uh, I think stand out for me are uh, Mark of the Devil from 1970 and um, then the, the uh, Witchfinder General, the Vincent Price movie. I can't remember when that is. I'm pretty sure that's very early 70s as well. Nice. Late 60s or early 70s also, uh, where... Really, the the horror here is that innocent is innocent people being accused of witchcraft for other reasons. Right, like they talk about, and I won't go too deep into it. Mark of the Devil has a lot of stuff going on in that film. It's got Udo Kier in it. It's got Herbert Lom in it, Um, and Udo Kier is extremely young. I mean, he looks almost like he's twenty in this movie. He probably wasn't. I'm guessing he was a little older than that, but he he looks extremely young in this movie. Um. But, you know, the, the church wanted somebody's land. So there was sort of the, the, the order came down, well, let's accuse him of witchcraft. Yeah, when we had first initially discussed doing this, we were talking about doing like a Witch Hunters episode because right. we were looking forward to the release of The Last Witch Hunter. And we had talked about uh, reviewing Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. But then when neither of those were really being horror films per se, we decided right. to kind of uh, – hold off until something else came around. And luckily the witch seems like the perfect marriage with some of those classic films you wanted to talk about. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Hansel and Gretel one, I would call like action horror, but yeah, the last witch hunter by all accounts is not really. So that's interesting. But so listeners, if you want to be up with us um, and watch what we're going to be talking about for March 11th release episode 84 and check out the witch from 2016, Mark of the Devil, and The Witchfinder General. Okay, and the last thing, I'm just going to mention, speaking of Joel Robertson of Forgotten Flicks and Retro Movie Geek, we'll hope you check out his shows. 
um, he had recommended, and I'm not going to talk about it here because we're actually, we've got a themed episode coming up on this as well. But uh, Joel had recommended strongly that I check out Howl from 2016, H-O-W-L, which is a werewolf movie set on a train. And I, I love it because you got a Beastly Freaks flick, and you've also got a Siege narrative, and it's a good time. So um, just wanted to throw that out there in case people want to check it out. I think it's worth your time. And Definitely. I think, think you'd enjoy it very much. So we'll, we'll be talking about Howl. What themed episode is that one, Josh, that we were well, planning? I wanted to do like a, a Art House Werewolves. Since we, as soon as we did Art House Vampires, everyone said, well, where's the Art House Werewolves episode? <laughs> and at that point, where there indeed? Been a, yeah, a lot hadn't been released at that point. But then um, Ver or Where came out, Were, however you want to pronounce that film, um, right. came out. Um, when Animals Dream and Howl and all these movies kind of came out in the last you know year and a half, so uh, I think there's enough movies to kind of cover that. If we wanted to do an episode of that, I also just think we should just do a werewolves episode. I know I did my State of the Werewolf address, but a lot of people wanted to hear like our top ten werewolf movies or something like that. I'm not sure there's ten great werewolf movies to yeah. do that. But, <laughs> you might be able to do a top five. Yeah, I think we should. We need to do some kind of werewolf movie episode pretty darn quick i think so okay. um, that that's on my to-do list and how will when animals dream um and, and a list of some kind those will definitely be on, my, on top of my list to kind of look at doing okay so everybody out there bone up on your witch movies and on your werewolf movies as it's coming, yes coming at you Okay, well, I think that just about wraps up episode 83 of Horror Movie Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this show, and sorry about the extra weight. It was totally my fault. I spaced the release, but I want to thank my buddies for being here, Wolfman Josh and Dr. Shock, and I just want to know, Wolfman, uh, tell us what plugs you have for people to check out. I just want to remind everybody again to check out the Sci-Fi Podcast at thescifipodcast.com for part two of our Phantasm crossover uh, review, franchise review where we cover uh, Phantasm 3, Lord of the Dead, and Phantasm 4, Oblivion. Um, it's me, Dave, Jay, and uh, Matroid and Station from the Sci-Fi Podcast, which um, is just basically a continuation of what we did here on episode 82. You can also check me out at moviestreamcast.com where I'm covering new releases that are currently streaming online. And we're doing some fun stuff over there too. We're doing a Netflix and Kill episode coming up very soon where we're going to cover the top 10 best horror movies streaming on Netflix. I love that title. It's very clever. Very clever, Josh. What about you, Dave? What do you got for people to check out? Nothing really new. Just come up with a DVDinfatuation.com. Still going strong there. As a matter of fact, as we're recording, I am uh, preparing to release the, the next one, and it is the classic 1985 fantasy film Red Sonia. I should put classic in quotes, actually. <laughs> but, uh, yep, so come on over there, uh, at DVD Infatuation on Twitter. I do have a Facebook page as well. And you can hear me also on uh, Land of the Creeps with uh, Greg Amortis and uh, Jesse Robbins. Okay, and I'd just like for people to check out Movie Podcast Weekly. This weekend here, sometime this weekend, I'm so far behind on everything, we've got our Reflections on the Oscars episode, the 88th Academy Awards which is pretty rambunctious and that's fun and we always review the new releases that are coming out in theaters like uh triple nine 
for example. And then uh, Carl reviewed Eddie the Eagle. So check that out at moviepodcastweekly.com. And as far as this podcast, you can find all of our back catalog, our previous episodes to Horror Movie Podcast, as well as the weekly Horror Movie Podcast and Horror Metropolis at horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Horror Movie Cast. We want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our theme song. You can find Fred's music at frederickingram.com. And I think that's it. So on behalf of my good friends here, Dr. Shock and Wolfman Josh, we thank you for listening and join us again next Friday for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies.